Beats. They've been around since the beginning. But what do we really know about them? It's time to start asking questions. I'm Chris Brunt. This is Padre. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Brunt, and this is issue one of the Padre Review, the newest and most important venue for literary discussion in, so far as I can tell, the entire world. Like our Bad Dads miniseries with Brad Franco, these are bonus episodes that will run in between full seasons of Padre. Season two, by the way, is currently in production, and we'll be sharing the premiere date with you soon. Each issue of the Padre Review will be edited by a major figure from the literary world, which means they'll be here with me in the Padre studio, having an in-depth conversation about poems, novels, and stories that have helped me select that'll tell us something true and urgent about parenthood, about being fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, siblings, stepchildren, orphans, Genghis Khan-like progenitors, whatever the case may be. Today's issue is edited by my friend and one of the most exciting poets to come along in memory, Kaveh Akbar. Kaveh's poems appear in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Paris Review, Best American Poetry. He's the author of two spectacular, transcendent poetry collections, Pilgrim Bell and Calling a Wolf a Wolf. He's also the editor of The Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse, 100 Poets on the Divine. And later this year, Kanaf will publish his debut novel, Martyr. He's a professor at the University of Iowa and the poetry editor of The Nation. I've been teaching his incredibly rich and powerful work for years. There's nobody better, and nobody I'm more excited to dig into these poems with. We're going to talk about three poems about fatherhood together, two by a couple of Hall of Fame Detroit poets, and one by Kaveh himself. But look, before we get to the poetry, here's something you might not know about Kaveh Akbar. Kaveh is a baller, okay? Kaveh can hoop. This man is six foot four at a minimum. I won't even go into the wingspan. And Kaveh, like me, grew up in the 90s watching Michael Jordan's Bulls on TV every night. But unlike me, Kaveh grew up in the Midwest, not too far from the city of Chicago. And also, unlike me, Kaveh is reported to be actually quite good at basketball. So I wanted to do something nice for our friend, to show him that we at Padre appreciate his time and value his expertise and celebrate him as an artist and as a human being as he should rightly be celebrated. No, I couldn't get Michael Jordan here due to scheduling considerations, mine mostly. So I did the next best thing I could think of. Because part of our mission here at Padre is to make dreams come true. That's why we give out the Not A Terrible Father In This One Instance Award. That's why we've promoted Julian to co-host and given him a platform to air his opinions and ideas and criticisms of me, his dad. And that's why I made this special custom show intro for Kaveh. So here we go. It's the Padre Review, Issue 1, with guest editor Kaveh Akbar, coming at you from the floor of our childhood dreams, a.k.a. the Madhouse on Madison, a.k.a. Chicago Stadium.
yeah, poetry. Let's give it to yeah, him. Yeah, fuck yeah, poetry. Who are the poets that can ball? Like, what's the starting five? Joy. Joy, Joy is a point Joy guard. Priest. Can... Joy Priest brings the ball yeah. up for sure. Yeah, um, Joy Priest uh, played ball. Nabila Loveless played ball. Mm-hmm. John Sands mm-hmm. is a poet who plays basketball. Ross Gay plays. Adrian Matika has been on IR for years, but purportedly had was like a real sort of like Reggie Miller type, like okay. fighting around screens and then like just a knockdown dead eye shooter. Yeah. Who, who, who um, you personally dunked on? <laughs> <laughs> I've played, I've played, you know, Natalie is famously, Natalie Diaz is famous oh, footballer. Right. Uh, she played for Old Dominion and then played professionally overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of poet ballers. Terrence, for sure. I that's enough for that's, that's enough for a couple teams, man. We could get a league going. 100%. Yeah. We let fiction writers in though. That's the thing. I mean, hybrid See, sure. Fine, hybrid, yes. So, at Iowa where I teach, there's a yearly game of poets versus fiction writers in the workshop of baseball. And I think that fiction writers have never lost. <laughs> I think that that's all the story. I think that that's literally true. Um, I'm not sure. Going back to, exactly. to 1931, the <laughs> fiction writers. Yeah, well, listen, don't don't quote me on any of I'm not, you know, I just moved here in July. I'm not super hip to all the Iowa lore, but I know that the Poets team actually went out of their way to practice this year and still got smashed, you know? And they were like, we just didn't have enough hitting. It's like, it surprises me because there are a lot of poets who are very athletic. I think it's something about baseball in particular. I think that baseball is just like such an excruciatingly boring sport. Uh, no offense to people who love baseball, I guess, but it's just such a demonstrably inferior sport to basketball. That, it's not the Great Depression uh, anymore. You know, I mean, let's come on. Let's move. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's just like it's like beneath the poets to excel at. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it would be I mean, they, Iowa. You know, you guys got to bring in a ringer. Do what you got to do. I mean, (laughs) there's a Simpsons episode about that where Mr. Burns's power plant has like a softball team and he brings in like Daryl Strawberry and all these like all these ringers and he hires them to the power plant to work at the power plant, but really to play on the team. Daryl Strawberry is a great choice for that because he'd do it too, you know, like he'd absolutely work. Well, there's like a whole, I'm not a baseball guy, but there's a whole fleet of like early 90s baseball stars who were involved. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. was one of them. You know, I thought today we would talk about three poets, Kave, who all all three of them are are near and dear to my heart. You know, it's interesting. We've got two Detroit poets. We've got the bad boys. We've got the Pistons lined up <laughs> against the starting guard here, Kave sure. by himself. Um, so we don't want to. We don't want that tension to seep in here into our reading of the poems. I want to put that on the table first. I won't hold it. I won't hold it against the Pistons. And actually, in all in all realness, I was a Bucks fan growing up, and so the, you're a Bucks guy, right? I mean, like yeah. Hardcore, and so both right? the and so yeah, and so both the Bulls and the Pistons just beat the crap out of my beloved like Glenn Robinson, Sam Cassell, Ray Allen Bucks Sam my whole Cassell, childhood. Baby. Cause it was like, it was like the, it was like the, you know, Jordan Bulls. And then it was like the Ben Wallace, Chauncey Billups Pistons. And so you're you, the, between those two teams, you're talking and they're all in the same central division. Right. And so uh, you're talking about like two of the biggest childhood bullies for me. But Though now it's your time. You're a Bucks fan. You're right. You're, you're walking in tall cotton. You're fine. You know, no one <laughs> walking in tall cotton. You. you have Giannis. 
Okay, yeah. so poet number one is, uh, mm-hmm. is is a good friend of this podcast, Hyan Sharara. It's from his new collection, newish, most recent collection, These Trees, mm-hmm. Those Leaves, This Flower, That Fruit. I read that as a as a PDF for the first. I think I wrote some words for the cover. You're 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 on the back of the book here with Diane Seuss recently. Yeah, me and Diane two pieces of surprise. Yeah, um, it's like one of those like one of these things is not like the others. But no, I love Hyen's work. I think that he's I think that he's he's very like he doesn't bang his pots and pans about himself very much. But I think that he's quietly one of our best. One of the best, and he has so many great dad poems it was so hard mm-hmm. Big, you and i were going back and forth over text like mm-hmm. this poem this poem this poem he has so many amazing poems about about his father about his you know, just sort of like what we'll call today dad poems but also yeah. about being yeah. a father himself right he's got two yeah. beautiful children um and he and he's just this is this is one of his great subjects uh, he's got this poem about his dad hitting a guy with a car that I wish, I wish, I wish that was here on the podcast <laughs> today too, but we'll just have a separate high and fan cast after this one. Absolutely. So this is Ode on an Abandoned House. Wind and rain. Here are the keys to the house. A missing door, two broken windows. Birds? For you, a room with a view. The bedroom which once held the moon and stars out of sight. Ants and worms, such sad witnesses, the grass uncut and the yard overgrown are again yours to inherit. And you, the leaves whirling across buckled floors, please take my father's voice whispering. May you live forever. May you bury me. Beautifully read. You know, it's a, it's it, his lines, the way they just kind of fall down the page. They, they're, he's really a poet who, whose lines just tell you exactly how to read them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this one, you know, the, those last two lines are what for me really just kind of take the air out of my, my lungs. Right. May you live forever. May you bury me. How do you read those? How do those, how do those hit you? Well, the juice of this poem for me is the thinginess, right? He's not saying like, oh, my dad, oh, my father's voice, how I miss my father's voice, right? May you live forever. May you bury me. It's like this sort of, it's an idiom in, I think, a lot of cultures. Maybe it's an English idiom too. I don't really know. But the that idea of like, you know, to live without you would be untenable. So like, may you bury me. I mean, this is a sentiment that, you know, I've expressed to my spouse. Like I, I think it would be like you, you have to be the one who lives longer than, I mean, God, this got dark past, but um, like, I just, it would just be untenable, you know, like it just would be like my spouse is more resilient than I am in every direction. You know, like it would just be uh, certainly from a parent to a child. Right. You know, the thinginess, right? That that the poem is concerned with the ants and the worms and the the bedroom that once held the moon and stars out of sight and the missing, even the door that is missing. So it's just like an open space is thingified, right? The, a missing door, right? It's like almost like apophatically invoked, right? The, it's the all door. It's all, it's, you know, yeah. it should be very, very sad, very melancholy, 
imagery, right? Here's this house just falling down. And we, I, I get a sense that this is the speaker's childhood house. You know, this is the house the, 100%. they grew yeah. up in, right? And yet it doesn't really have that music. It doesn't have that tone because maybe because of the address, because we're giving it back to the ants mm-hmm. and the worms. We're giving it back to the grass. There's, mm-hmm. The speaker feels very much at peace with this process of this thing is fucking fallen down. And that's... And I like, too, the way that may you bury me since you is the pronoun used to address those things, right? The wind and the worms, et cetera, uh, that may you bury me, which was ostensibly spoken by the father to the son, becomes almost like an appeal to the wind, to the dirt of this house, to the to the bones of this house. Right. Like, may you bury me? Like, may I be buried in, you know, such vaunted dirt such vaunted spit you know such hallowed ground right which i like very much too the sort of pressure put upon that second person pronoun you is very quiet and deaf there and it's such a clean poem too you know i i think of high and sure the way i think of poets like ada limon or sharon olds or elizabeth alexander in that their lines are just so like crisp and clean and yes. um almost like deceptively uh clear Right. Because, you know, there's nothing there's no word in this poem that, you know, your son wouldn't know. Right. Your young son. Right. Inherit maybe overgrown. Right. There's there's nothing there's no like. Right. Never, but, never any ornament. Right. At all. Yeah. Never, yeah. Never, it's not pristine. They're 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 yeah. so smooth. And I mean, I, I honestly I think of Hyen and his and his way of speaking, which is also incredibly assured and calm and relaxed and intentional, you know, um, and with just a, always a touch of that sort of sense of humor to it, right. Or a touch of irony to it. But this poem, I mean, the, ultimately it wants to be read as some kind of metaphor, right? Like we're talking about an mm-hmm. abandoned house and it's an ode to an abandoned house. And it has this astonishing ending that, that fills us with this sort of paradoxical, you know, or maybe just bittersweet feeling of, of, of loss. It feels to me like it's trying to be about you know, memory, the problem of memory, the problem of, 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 of being able to recollect your childhood house, this thing that is gone or your father who may be gone, right. Mm -hmm. Or at least your father's voice that may be gone and, and being able to honor it in your memory. And yet it's, it's the sort of thing that's, that's being blown away by the, by the wind, right. It's whirling away. Yeah. Yeah. Memory almost as a kind of matter. Do you know, Sorry, I'm going to be really poety for a second, but uh, Rilke's Ninth Duino Elegy. Um, I don't know them by number. So, uh, uh, <laughs> which Duino we talking about? <laughs> which Duino we talking about? Um, give me two seconds to pull it up, and then you yeah. can edit it as if I'm just pulling this out of. I'm, you don't. I'm. I'm, I'm also going to edit out the part where I go, no, which one is? I mean, you're like, yeah, the one where. You... <laughs> oh yeah, 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 and you just quote it from memory. Yeah, no, perfect. Um, <laughs> German, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, okay so the ninth one is the one where he's like you know so much is unutterable um all all that we can do is talk about what is utterable and and the part that i always this is the part that i always think about praise the world to the angel not the unutterable world you cannot astonish him with your glorious feelings in the universe where he feels more sensitively you're just a beginner Therefore, show him the simple thing that is shaped in passing from father to son, that lives near our hands and eyes as our very own. Tell him about the things 
He'll stand amazed as you stood behind the rope maker in Rome or the potter in the Nile. Show him how happy a thing can be, how blameless an hours. Right. So, I mean, just the idea that like, you're not going to impress an angel with your ideas about the ineffable with the unutterable, right. But you can impress an angel with like a decrepit house, right. Because like the thingness of the decrepit house, right. The thingness of that door frame missing its door, right. Like that's, that's what we have to show, right. For ourselves, right. Is, is this, you know, is our, uh, gunny sacks full of things, right. That we carry around with us. Even if, even if we don't even have it, what we have is the memory of it. What we have is the poem, the poem of the memory of it. Right. But again, that's what I'm so, I mean, like as a, as a poet myself, as a creative person myself, that's what interests me most is when an artist is able to strain their medium in order to allude to that, which the medium wasn't built to accommodate. Hmm. Right. Which is to say, if you took a picture of a house, you could draw that house pretty faithfully from that picture right the dimensions well, you and i couldn't be, but others, others you and i couldn't because we're both bad drawers as we've established <laughs> right but one could you know an architect could look at a photograph of a house and pretty reliably recreate a house that looks something like it right if i just described a house to you it doesn't matter like how actuarial i get right if i'm like you know the bay windows are five feet tall but you know whatever uh, I don't know what a bay window is, but uh, the, uh, the big pretty ones you can sit inside, you know, where they kind of, Oh, the ones with the little like reading. Yeah. They go out a little bit. So you can oh, kind of get up in you, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I do know what a bay window is then. <laughs> um, but you know, like I think that language can only give you metaphors or, you know, I can say like, this is what the house was like. Right. Whereas a photograph is really good at saying like, this was the house. Right. Um, and the way that Hyen's poem is, is sort of pouring language around the absence of the house, right. And revealing the mold, right. Or, or it's like flower thrown on a ghost, right. Like yeah. we're sort of seeing the shape of the house that once was right. Even though he's really only describing absence. That's, that's, that's the thing that interests me often most in art is when the medium is being sort of deployed against the silence or against an absence to give the silence or absence shape. And it's so perfect, perfect too, because what the father is expressing here or what the son is re- remembering or an imagining, imagining the father expressing is a kind of impossible thing, right? This impossible wish that we have to, to keep each other, you know, even after death, mm-hmm. may you live forever, may you bury me. One of those is far more likely than the other. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that, you know, if I could have this, then, mm-hmm. you know, then that's a, that's a fate that I can accept. Right. Well, and I mean, like, what is it? I, I'm not a father, right? I have a puppy that I adopted and three cats and that's, you know, um, but what is it to, I'm going to have you back on with, with Himanshu and we're going to do like a dog father episode. Right? I can't wait. It can't <laughs> wait. We're going to be great. Uh, what is it to create life knowing that the best case scenario is that it lives richly and then like dies in 80 years or 90 years or whatever? Yeah. I like, mean, like just knowing that there's a terminus for the thing that you're creating. I don't think about their longevity in exactly that way. I, I, I feel like 
I'm asking this because it's an anxiety, not like, oh, you fucking monster. I'm I'm asking no, this no, no, because no, no, it's no. an anxiety. I, 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 think, I think about their mortality all the fucking time, like yeah, yeah, all yeah. day. But it's more in the yeah. context of like, can I get them through the next few years? Like, can I get them? Can I get them into <laughs> adulthood? Can I get them through this mm-hmm. gauntlet of danger mm-hmm. and peril? You know, mm-hmm. yes, yesterday for the holiday, we were at our friend John's um, family vacation place up in Thousand Islands. And, um, we just, we had this beautiful time. He was so hospitable. His people were so lovely and, uh, it was kind of perfect. You know, the boys were just romping all over this Island and they were jumping in the St. Lawrence river, which is damn near freezing even this time of year. But to get mm-hmm. in there, they had to go through these rocks and they had to kind of the, you know, the sand is wet and it's slippery. And all day long, I felt like I was just, you know, in a state of pretty high tension, Right. Of like mm-hmm. make sure the little one didn't slip and fall and the big one wasn't gonna drown or get hypothermia in the water or what have you. Mm-hmm. Just you're just constantly on yeah. on like rescue duty when you when you have small children. I don't know what it's like as they, you know, John has teenage daughters, right? So he's in a totally different world as a parent. Mm-hmm. And the things that he's afraid of and has anxiety over are 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 I would imagine quite different. But I think more about, yeah my responsibility to them in this very immediate, almost visceral sense of like, like I'm spotting them all the time. I'm walking behind them. Like don't fall right now. So the, so you're governed more by the kind of acute crises than, I mean, it's all, it's all sort of abstract for me because I don't have an actual, and this is, I mean, this is so much like recovery just broadly, right. It's like, it's all abstract for me right now because I don't have an actual child about whom to worry right but for you it's acute and hourly and minute to minute and so you're not focused on the endless reprocessing of the big existential thing because but i do think about their childhood as this thing that's like happening right now before our eyes Mm -hmm. and yet only gets to happen once and so i put a lot of pressure on myself for that right like don't fuck it up man they only get one of these don't traumatize them today um That friend, that friend of mine who, uh, he's, he's the one who's, we have each other's number memorized so we can call each other. Uh-huh. Um, he's got two little girls and his big thing is, you know, his sort of mantra that he tells himself is just don't be the reason for their childhood trauma today. You know, that's his 24 hour a day. Um, yeah. just don't be that reason. Uh, you know? It's so, and it's like, you could be, you could be perfect 364 days out of the year, but you, and, you, could, you could have that one day and, and yeah. That's the indelible mark, right, on their childhood. So it is abstract in that sense. It is a kind of like, how much of a long view can I take here? But even just within their childhood, even within the last three or four or five years, you know, what is their life like? And how does the world feel on their nerve endings as a result of the atmospherics that I'm partially creating, right? (laughs) Um, And and how does death come into that? Well, you know, that's, that's a longer conversation, but. Um, well, but you're also the guardian of them having a childhood that they can look back on fondly and think of as a childhood, right? Um, which is something that a lot of people don't have, right? Is you know, a lot of people don't have like a childhood that they can think back on wistfully and be like, oh, how easy it was when I was a child, right? And that's a credit already. You know, they are both of them already. History, I think, right? Like, don't yeah, <laughs> the vast majority of people in human, I would say probably the majority of people living on the planet earth right now um, don't have a childhood that they can look back on and be like, wow, you know, that was perfect. Right. If only I could go back to the easiness, the ease of those days. 
Right. Yeah. And you know, you don't need it to be, per- you don't want it to be perfect. You, you want them to be resilient. You want them to know the, the, the struggles of moving through this world and certainly the struggles that others who are less fortunate have. And, and that's all part of it. But at the same time, there is something that, that ought, that ought to be idyllic. Um, yeah. And, and they shouldn't have to feel under threat all of the time. Well, you know? and that, but I mean, that, that calibration too. I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm just like narrating my anxieties about like ever becoming a parenting, but like that calibration, (laughs) that calibration is so delicate, right? Like my dad came to America in his twenties with like $300 in his pocket and moved from duck farm to duck farm my whole life. And, uh, and he worked, you know, six days a week, farmers hours, et cetera, et cetera. And farms that he didn't own, just like labor on, you know, I'm not, you know, like he, he worked on, um, he worked on corporate farms. And so his, my life has been orders of magnitude easier than his, um, though not without its trials. Right. I mean, like I have never had to, like, if I imagine when I was 24, like moving to China, right. Like a, like a language that I didn't speak a word of. Um, not even like moving to France that I kind of like knew food words or, you know, like just truly just didn't speak a word of it. Right. Um, just moving to China when I was 24 and being like, all right, I've got $300 in my pocket. What now? You know, um, God, that's scary. Right. Um, yeah. And, and then my life, right. Has, you know, I've passed through addiction and a number of, you know, and whatever. Right. And, I'm happy with where I am now. You know, I'm married to my best friend. I get to do my favorite thing in the world for a living. And it's very, very lucky. And I don't know. And so like, if I were to have a kid, I would want to protect them from some of the things, but I also don't want them to be a little shit. You know what I mean? Like I want them to, I want them to like, I don't know, like that, that calibration, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, like there was like something about having the foil of the world or the foil of withholding parent or whatever. Right. Made me be like, ah, see, I can prove you wrong. You know what I mean? And like, I don't know. I'm not even like forming complete thoughts. I just, no, 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 no. I, I, this is something that, you know, my partner and I talk about constantly. Right. Yeah. Um, that exact calibration and, you know, um, sometimes the word, various uh, conjugations of spoil will come into yeah, the conversation, yeah. right? Like, yeah. how do you make, how do you guard against that? And it's like, on some level, this is a kind of experiment that in our family that we're doing, like what would happen mm-hmm. to what kind of grown up comes out of an actually good and pleasant and healthy yeah. and happy childhood, yeah, you know, like emotionally um, mature parents. Yeah. Um, you know, and to some extent we don't know, right? Like we don't know what that's going to look like. And on, a, on another level you think, well, the foils will actually present themselves, right? Like we don't have to actually go looking for them. They will certainly, mm-hmm. you know, and we might not actually know what they are until we're looking backward, right? We're looking in yeah, the mirror, yeah. you know, I mean, ob- like moving to China would, you know, would be a kind of loud and obvious one, but there are other maybe more subtle ways for hardship, struggle, difficulty to enter their lives that we're not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Of. And then the final piece of it is like, you know, I noticed this more with my, with my older one, um, because he's the older one, but also given his personality, like he will find that inside himself, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like he will mm-hmm. generate, uh, something to struggle with. 
if nothing mm-hmm. else presents itself, you can make everything on a glide path and 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 give them everything that they need, not necessarily everything they want, but everything that they need. And mm-hmm. uh, and something about just like being a person is hard enough. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> where where like I'm like, why are you working so hard, man? Like all you got to do today is like skateboard and watch TV, you know, like (laughs) what are you, what are these windmills you were tilting at my boy? Um, But they're just like, he he found him in his soul, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like here's something that I'm going to battle with, you know, and. He's like Jordan. He just like he like makes up that the <laughs> player across from him. He's like, "What'd you uh, say about my mom?" The guy's like, "I didn't say anything. What are you talking about?" And he's like, "I, I vendetta, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now no, I got to score fifty five on you in the garden. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's my yeah. The last dance was full of those sorts of stories where he would just like make up some shit about Gen a player across from him. Ginned up beef. Just the other guy yeah, is like completely yeah. unaware. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. And and I think that when I listen back to this, what I will hear is my desire for control and your relative surrender, right? Mm-hmm. Your relative surrender. Truly like you're my like, absolute the world surrender. like, Oh fuck. I tried, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, like we're teetering on the precipice of irreversible e- ecological collapse mm-hmm. with, you know, the global specter of fascism rising and taking over left and right. And, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that one needs to look hard in this world for foils. And I'm like worrying about how to manufacture and calibrate them. And, you know, what, what I'm, what I am hearing even now speaking is my own desire to control every variable, you know, in, in the hypothetical non-existent child's life. It's the difference between looking back what Hyen does in his poem, right? Looking back at this, uh, (laughs) <laughs> that was know, good. That was good. Way to reel it back in. At this, you know, looking back at the abandoned house of childhood of memory and and uh-huh. and, and and seeing it so clearly, right? And seeing its paradoxical beauty and and decay and and death and the yearning for it to live forever, knowing that knowing that it can't, etc. Uh-huh. And then the looking forward, you know, I mean, two weeks ago, we couldn't see the fucking sun uh-huh. because of the wildfires from Quebec. And the whole time that was happening was we couldn't go outside for three days because of the air quality. I'm thinking my kids are seven and almost four. What the fuck is going to be going on when they're 27 and 24, much less 47 Mm -hmm. and 44? I think about that stuff all the time, but it's so just like any other kind of angle you want to take on climate change and on the kind of like coming, as you say, like the ecological collapse, it just stuns your mind with with its enormity, right? Mm -hmm. You think, well, certainly that renders me in a position of surrender and and all i really can worry about is make sure they don't slip into the saint lawrence river this afternoon Mm -hmm. and like bang her knee up (laughs) i mean sure yeah 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 well and i think too i mean and this is off topic but or semi off topic but i think too you know one of the greatest hustles that late capitalism has pulled on us is the idea that this is all like individual responsibility, uh-huh. right? Like this is like your and my fault for not using metal straws our whole lives, yeah. as opposed to, you know, industry 
producing like 90 whatever percent of the world's pollutants and you know the world's carbon etc being produced by like the eight largest manufacturers etc etc and monsanto etc you know what i mean like the idea that it's like because you and i haven't been like rinsing out our aluminum cans (laughs) enough you know which we we still do that cat food can right in the recycle bin without yeah yeah, i don't want to rinse it yeah this is all this is it's your fault that the turtles are dying you know but meanwhile the recycling truck's not even going to the recycling center anymore it's just dumping it behind the fucking town and in a which is literally how it which is literally what happens to 90 plus percent of it but my spouse and i still you know we rinse our cat food cans and we've talked about this and it's like i we understand intellectually that this is going to the same landfill as everything else but there's something about the ritual of the rinsing that it like it like takes us out of our day and it reminds us that we are connected to an earth that is inflected by our behavior you know and whether this specific behavior is um, helping that or not, it's at least making us mindful in that moment, which carries over into everything else, which is basically how prayer works in my life too. It's like, I pray for my mom's health or whatever. And then I call her and make sure that she's taking her medicine, et cetera. Right. I mean, that's, that's my understanding of how prayer works. But speaking of, uh, houses of childhood memory, transcendent Detroit poet of the mid 20th century, Robert Hayden, uh, has something to say about that, doesn't he, Chris? He does comment. And that was also an excellent uh, segue to your poem, which we're going to talk about. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So not to give Robert Hayden short shrift, but we're going to we're going to read this poem and then move to yours. This is a poem that I, I bet a lot of people have heard at least once come across. It's one of the most anthologized poems of the 20th century. And, and as you said, there's a there's a really good reason for that. It's a it's a beautiful poem. Those winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Beautifully read. I never know how to how to uh, how to stress that second to last line. You know, I, I mean, I think when you scan it, you get a different answer, but. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like no. it wants to actually the stress wants to move, and I think you could go either way. But it's you know, what did I know? What did I know? Or or what did I know? What did like, I know? What did I know? What did I know? What did I just I, know? I never yeah. want to read it the same way back to back. I always wanted the stress yeah. to, to yeah. Eventually, you'll get it right. Like one of the one of the possible permutations will be the correct. Actually, this poem I I think about it all the time because it's again doing that thing that I was speaking about in the Chara poem of dressing the medium right like the there's this brian eno quote about the the crack in a blues singer's voice being the sound of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it Mm. and i think about this poem and that final stanza where he says speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well what did i know what did i know of love's austere and lonely offices and the way that the sort of lyric catalog of those first stanzas gives way to that direct address right and the way that this is like someone recounting a boyhood and then moving suddenly into the present 
with that interrogative almost as if to be like, ah, this, this artifice, this lyric poem shit this is not working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this, this like, you know, like it's, it's like he's reaching his hand out from the page and being like, no, 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 this isn't like me being cute, me being a poet. Like, this is, what did I know? You know, what like the, the, I know motherfucker. Yeah, like, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. You can't see it. Uh, uh, if you're listening to the audio, but like, this is a poem that we both read probably literally a thousand times. In fact, uh, I have this poem when my spouse and I, my spouse is a poet, Transcendent America poet, Paige Lewis. And when we were studying for our PhD comp exams, um, it was the way that we had to take our PhDs was in a locked room with no Wi-Fi and no computers oh, and yeah. no phones. Mm-hmm. They would just ask you, the right of you know, a, yeah, they would just ask you a litany of questions about one of a hundred books on a list and you just had to be able to answer them. And so we spent, those two years is just taking long walks, memorizing poems together, um, which is something that Paige is extraordinarily good at. And like as good as Paige is at it, I am that bad at it. Right. Um, <laughs> like, no, for real. No, for real. I, I, like, I suck. Like, I can, I can, I, song lyrics. I'm an, yeah. I'm an encyclopedia of song lyrics, yeah. movie quotes. It's embarrassing how many movies I can yeah. quote from beginning to end poems yeah. because they're written artifacts that are sitting there on the yeah. page they will not go in my brain they won't stay there <laughs> yeah it has for me it's like like page is such a obsessive looker like when mm-hmm. they look at a bird like they don't just see a bird they see like a red-breasted robin with like a little bit of white on its left foot and like its right wing is kind of crooked right like they see I, i'm like oh look there's a red bird you know on page is like yeah yeah that's the robin with the white foot that i've been telling you about you know what i mean uh and so they would always memorize these poems within the first you know if it's if, if we were doing this poem page would have it memorized in a half hour and then we'd spend the next hour and a half with them just teaching it to me. Right. Which of course just reinforced it for them. And, but I say this all to say, um, this was, this is one of the ones that you can put a quarter in the jukebox and it'll come out. But, um, and I think all the time about that ending and the reason that everyone remembers and like the way that he uses offices is not a way that we tend to use offices today. Right. Like it's a sort of strange usage of the word, you know, sort of meaning like a station or what, you know, but, uh, or like the, you know, workplace almost. But it's that Um, usage that is, that is so out of the ordinary and so utterly fucking perfect. And and yeah, yeah, yeah. for it to, to sort of, yeah you know, to absorb all the different kind of vectors of this poem into that final point, that resting point. Right. And it's got it all. And it's not a, it's not a pretty word either. You know, it's not like love, lonely and austere butterflies or something, you know, like it's (laughs) It's not cute. It's yeah. 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 It's hardness and it's almost, it's like bureaucratic, you know, uh, is what, is what makes it the perfect word here, right? Because yeah. this whole poem is about him doing his father doing this domestic work, right? This work and like the most of, like imagine. I feel like because we all know this poem so well, we do, we stop like we stop hearing it. But cracked hands that ache from labor and weekday weather, and then he's polishing his shoes on a Sunday. You know, like imagine the humility to like wake up early on a Sunday before your kid and like polish your kid's shoes, you know, not like, Hey, Robert, get in here. You know, like Bobby, come polish your We're shoes. Late for church. Like, get up. God damn yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get, get here and polish your shoe. You know, but like he wakes up early and polishes his son's shoes 
And his hands hurt. His fucking hands yeah. hurt because he's working yeah. in like a furnace in Detroit yeah. in the twenties. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's 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 truly yeah. And and again, like this is the kind of reflection that I think are you know the idiom of recovery um, trades in this kind of anecdote, right? You know the the where was I selfish? Where was I fearful? Where was I self seeking? Where was I ignorant? You know maybe not so much when you're like a little kid, but you know the no, but that's what he's doing of, here, right? That's that's yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Here. Yeah, it's like it feels like a very recovery adjacent mm-hmm. anecdote too, right? Well, because he talks about like the cruelty, you know the it's, the the angers, the chronic angers of that household. Yeah, it's right? not a judgment of himself as a child necessarily, like completely yeah. because. It's really just a it's a confession of ignorance and a yeah. um and, a, and an ignorance that he couldn't that couldn't be helped right that because yeah. he was a child and this house was a fucked up house right yeah like yeah he talks about the chronic angers of that household and I think that in a less emotionally mature poet's hands right he'd be like damn like parents are always angry about everything and you know like <laughs> suck for me you know like they never did shit for me you know but but here i'll tell you what i know that that loves austere and lonely offices if <laughs> wasn't that guy yeah but i mean like that's the that's the thing right is to you know rebuke ethical infantilization and rebuke the sort of like marvel movie of rhetorical hygienics where like you're the you're the superhero of the poem who behaved in you know ethically immaculate ways from beginning to end and everyone around you aggrieved you and the poem is your place to sort of you know taking air your yeah 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 air your recriminations right like it's it's much more interesting to me to take the position of you know I'm fucked and I'm ignorant and I have vast cavities in my empathy. And so do you, what do we do about it? The right? poem is and not about his father. It's about him and it's about his retrospective. Right? His, yeah. his looking yeah. back and, and seeing himself, not his father. He sees himself, you know, and, 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 and to see himself, he has to also see his father wake up before him in the cold. Right. Yeah. It's fucking cold in that house. His father wakes up before him to warm it for everyone. That is an act of love. That is an act of of devotion that that he can no longer allow himself to be ignorant of. You know? Yeah. And even even when his father calls him, he rises slowly in dress. Right. Like he it's not like he's like up lickety split to like go out and give his father like a leave it to beaver hug right like he he rises slowly he's like oh my dad's waking me up on a sunday you know yeah slowly i mean I there's a reason dress fearing the i mean there's no distance between rise and dressed and fearing right he wakes up yeah, slowly yeah. i think because that fear the violence of this household is always crackling in the air right um, yeah. With the warmth that they, from the fire that's been stoked is also this crackle of danger, right? Of like, yeah. who knows who's going to get the shit? Be- I mean, look on the other on the opposite page in Robert Hayden's collective poems is another pretty famous poem called "The Whipping," right? Mm-hmm. Which is not about mm-hmm. his father, but it certainly feels uh, germane, right? That this is a person yeah. who experienced, you know, physical abuse throughout their childhood, who saw the abuse of other family members at the hands of their father and, and others, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a, this is a house that you don't want to wake up in period, you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to look back on that and, and do this incredible moral imaginative work of honoring the work that that man did do. 
mm-hmm. you know, is is really an astonishing act. I mean, oh, it's not it's it's not forgiveness. It's just a it's just a larger picture, right? Yeah, it's a larger. Picture. It's just a more honest, the more honest picture, yeah. right? It's just more honest than he was an ogre or he was a saint. Yeah. Okay, Kavi. Uh, we'll close with one of my favorite poets from his debut collection, "Calling a Wolf a Wolf," which is a book that I love so much. I teach it every semester at this point, really. I was going to say every year, but I think I end up teaching it every single semester. Uh, and one of my favorite poems in this book, which is called Learning to Pray. And Kabe, if you would, let us hear what this sounds like. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Chris. That was a lot. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, it's my luck to get to chat with you for any amount of time about poems in life. So yeah, this poem is called Learning to Pray. My father moved patiently cupping his hands beneath his chin, kneeling on a John Amaz, then pressing his forehead to a circle of Karbala clay. Occasionally, he'd glance over at my clumsy mirroring, my two big Packers t-shirt and pebble red shorts, and smile a little, despite himself. Bending there with his whole form marbled in light, he looked like a photograph of a famous ghost. I ached to be so beautiful. I hardly knew anything yet. Not the boiling point of water or the capital of Iran. Not the five pillars of Islam or the verse of the sword. I knew only that I wanted to be like him. That twilight stripe of father, mesmerizing as the blue-white Isnik tile hanging in our kitchen worshipped as the long, faultless tongue of God. Oh, Kave. You know when you read that how fucking good this poem is. I know you know. <laughs> I know you hear it. <laughs> I, I actually, you can, you can tell that I haven't revisited. I mean, I haven't read from my first book in years. Mm. And I haven't read that poem in particular in a long time. I mean, I, I, I literally mean like I haven't, and I don't mean read it in front of, people i mean i literally haven't read it yeah do you remember writing uh, do you remember the process of putting this together it doesn't sound like most of the poems in that book i don't i don't i don't remember writing it to be honest with you i wish that i had like a quippy story you know like i was struck by a olympian thunderbolt and out came this poem or something but well maybe that's kind of what happened and that's why you don't remember it yeah, maybe. Well, it's one of those poems, you know, and you have, you know, I've I've read your incredible work as well. And there are poems that just sound a little bit out of your own idiom. And it's almost like those are just the sort of freebies, you know, like you have the punch card that you get. I don't know. I'm speaking in the second person. I have the punch card that I get, you know, it's like buy 10 milkshakes and your 11th milkshake is free. It's like mm-hmm. when I show up, for 10 poems sometimes the unconscious the muse the universe whatever you call it right sometimes it'll just like hand me one right like sometimes it'll just sometimes it's like here's your freebie you know and the long and faultless you know, tongue of god there you go there you go yeah no for real though for real i i mean it and like and like you know you show up to the salt mines of those poems where 
uh, you know, you're just sort of beating your head against your desk for eight hours to get one line out. Right. And to just, you know, you're, what's the thing you stare at the page till one of you bleeds or, you know, all of these sort of like macho bullshit things. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a time in my life where I was writing to avoid accidentally killing myself. I mean, like that's what this book was was early recovery when i knew that if i wrote for four hours Mm -hmm. then that was four hours that i didn't have to worry about accidentally relapsing or harming you know if i like went to the coffee shop and wrote for eight hours or if i went to the library and read for six hours you know like those that you know before or after a meeting or whatever this was time that i didn't have to worry about i mean it was literally just a place to put myself I, i mean myself holistically like my physical body it was a place to put myself and also my brain my consciousness and most of those poems move very quickly and are kind of super saturated with imagery and many or most even issue punctuation in this kind of late Merwin, Clifton, uh, Alan Bryant Floyd's Headwaters sort of way where, you know, it becomes like the sort of centripetal rush of language. And then there are just a couple poems in the book like this that are much slower, right? And that speak in complete grammatical sentences. And yeah, again, like they just feel like the free smoothie on the punch card, you know, where it's like, I'm not even like proud of it necessarily because it just doesn't feel like it came from labor. You know, like you're proud of things that you made and that took effort right and this one it's it's one of those poems that i think as best as i can recall was like 85 percent done after the first draft in an hour you know yeah um uh, it's just one of those there's you know it, it is it, it it is it is so natural and it feels so inevitable and there's just not a of course there's not a word out of place or, or a word that's uh not needed what it's describing is you know is ultimately it's a simple scene, right? You seeing yourself as a young boy. You don't allow a lot of description here, but but there's such economy in what you do allow, right? My two big Packers t-shirt and pebble red shorts. There's affection in that. There's uh, the local notes that give it a kind of time and and maybe maybe not a time, but certainly a place, right? Um, well, then, just like the idea of like a little Muslim kid and like a too big back, you know, yeah, like, but there's, a like, lot which there, right? there's a lot of your biography yeah, yeah. in that little image. Yeah, right. And then, but then the camera immediately pans and smile a little despite himself. Right. You've got that parenthetical almost so that we're still actually concentrating on what the father sees here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the miracle of the poem is that you never really go into his point of view or even try to mm-hmm. speculate as to what he's, maybe thinking or feeling, right? It is a poem about you as a child um, or looking back at at, at you as a child. I ached to be so beautiful. I hardly knew anything yet. It's this this tension between your desire and knowledge or the lack of knowledge, right? What knowledge can't Mm -hmm. give you, um, (laughs) what you can't ever really understand, which may be what's going on inside your father, maybe... God or what God sees when he looks at you, right? Which yeah. certainly is the theme that runs through this book, right? This kind of, this attempt to open up a dialogue with a higher power, with a with a, uh, with a supreme being of some kind. Um, I saw somebody criticize that book one time as saying it was like just a book of my daddy issues with God. And I thought that was like the most brilliant thing that I've, like, I'm like, yeah. 
yeah, you know, like paradise and, lost yeah. motherfucker. Like, what kind of criticism <laughs> is that? No, I just I was like, I thought that was like such a beautiful way. Like, I wish that I had <laughs> come up. You know what There's I mean? I wish that I had copy. Come up. Yeah, because it was just, it was just it was I I don't remember it, I feel like it was just like a Twitter egg you know who said who said it That's you know like just like an unattributable yeah. but it was like it was so I don't remember I, that like I even I'm not that masochistic uh-huh. but and I, I I'm you know I admit to reading I'm happy to admit that I I read all of my reviews exactly once you know all the reviews that cross my path I, the good ones and the bad ones I think that they're interesting usually uh yeah that daddy issues with god i think about that all the time i think it's so good i mean when i was a kid i literally thought my dad's umbrella caused the rain you know because when he would grab the umbrella when we would walk outside it was raining you know and like and it's like and you know he talked to me about god and stuff i mean is is it like this I, i you know i don't know and you don't have to share on this if you don't want to about how you talk to your kids but like i imagine it's like this for a lot of little kids right it's like Especially maybe not so much in your home, but in our home, you know, my dad was very much like the center, the, the you know, the sun around which everything orbited. Right. So, you know, when I when someone was describing like a masculine, all powerful deity who knew everything about me and controlled everything, I was like, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he's like watching the Bucks game in the other room. You know what I mean? Like, yeah you know uh yeah it doesn't and, require a lot of like theological imagination <laughs> like, like yeah yeah that's what i'm saying yeah and so and and you know even you know as i grew older you know the closest human you know the way that for borges the sahara was a good approximation for infinity though of course you know there aren't infinite grains of sand in the sahara but like to the human mind it's about as close as you can come mm-hmm. For me, my dad was like the closest I could come to imagining an all-powerful Alpha and Omega creator, right? Yeah, I think that that started as early as the experience that I'm describing in this poem. Yeah, it, well, it reminds me of my other favorite line in this book, which runs through my head all the time, which is, it's, I think it's the last line of the book, it's the last poem in the book, and you're addressing an idea of God, or you're addressing God. Mm-hmm. And you say, I'm mm-hmm. almost ready to show you the mess I've made. <laughs> which is certainly merging then finally that paternal kind of role with mm-hmm. with an idea of god here right and again yeah. like returning yourself to to a childhood perspective right like it's opening the door to your kid's room right? <laughs> and, like, it is. Yeah. here's the mess right yeah, here's yeah, my life yeah. here's my soul here's here's what i've done with what i've been given um, yeah and there's that air of uh augustine in it too the the augustine said um grant me chastity and continence but not yet you know like that idea of like i'm almost almost ready like i'm still i'm still i'm still gonna like do a little crayon on the walls over here but like i'm almost you know i'm almost ready to show you yeah yeah but speaking of last lines i just worshipped as the long faultless tongue of god I, i think only charles simic would be in the sort of in the conversation with being able to write a line so perfect in its balance and and the it's a supernatural thing that you're describing and yet it feels so immediate and and visible and right here it's the proximity to this figure of your father in the midst of this ritual and this kind of um, it's otherworldly and yet you're 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 in your living room right we can mm-hmm. see your living room we can see the packer mm-hmm. shirt and the red pebble shorts um mm-hmm. finally then to to an unknowable idea which is if that tongue is faultless what a what a frightening notion 
right? <laughs> what a what an unrelatable you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. reality, yeah. right? Underpinning all yeah. of this. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, no. you know, comparing yeah. comparing to Simic is like comparing to Catullus or something. But I certainly, I it's a scary notion. I can agree with you on that. You know, is is this idea that if that is the model of God, then that is what is perfect, and in all the ways that I am not that all of the ways in which I am not that are therefore deficiencies, right. Or, or, or defectivenesses, right. Or, you know, and there are a lot of ways that I was not and am not that. Right. Not as a poet, my friend. Not as a poet. <laughs> not as an artist. Yeah. Uh, are, I appreciate it. We are fortunate to have this book um, and to have had you join us today and talk about these other poems and poets uh, our Detroit bad boys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and for, and for making this space where we can hang out with you and you're such a good steward through your myriad curiosities. And it's just a joy to spend time with you here and off the mics too. Likewise, man. And, and limber up, get loose because I, I think this poets league, I think, Absolutely. I think we have 100%. an idea with legs. I think we need to talk offline. I think you're right. I think you're right. So I'm going to start drawing right. up some brackets. I think we're going to have to get on. <laughs> I love it. All I right. love it. Kave, thanks, thanks so much, so much for being here. Appreciate it. Take care. That's all for the show today. Thanks to Hyan Chirara and the late, great Robert Hayden for writing gorgeous and meaningful poems. Thanks, of course, to our guest editor and starting guard, Kave Akbar. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be releasing another action-packed issue of the Padre Review soon. And there's even more Bad Dads with our friend Brad Franco on the way. It's an embarrassment of bonus episode riches here at Padre. Please subscribe to the pod wherever you listen and leave us a nice review. Help us move up the charts. Until next time, sweet lovelies. Thank you.